Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Jeffrey Keating. Today, we've got not one, not two, but three special guests in the studio. In the last 12 months, over dozens of releases from incremental improvements to huge redesigns, Intercom has learned a lot about scaling a product team and the nitty-gritty involved in getting valuable product out the door as fast as possible. In this episode, Intercom co-founder Des Trainer sits down with our very own VP of product, Paul Adams, and Intercom's Director of Product Design, Emma Connolly, to reflect on what it's really like to run a product org at scale. In this far-ranging discussion, they discuss what it takes to be a good product manager, why design ops plays a central role in designing product at scale, and much, much more. Whether you're a designer, product manager, or engineer, Paul, Emmett, and Des have got some tips for you. So let's hop into the studio and listen in on the conversation. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to the Intercom podcast. I'm joined today by our VP of product, Mr. Paul Adams. Hello, nice to be here. And our Director of Product Design, Mr. Emmett Connolly. Happy 2019, lads. So we're going to look back on last year and we're going to talk specifically about running Product Org at the scale that we're at today in the hopes that our listeners can learn something from this. That's not to say that we have all the answers, but we certainly have a good list of questions at this point. The R&D Org, how big are we today, Paul? Uh, in total, we're like over 200. And what's the breakdown there, Emmett? How many designers do we have? 20, 20 product designers and content designers. Right, okay. I presume it's mostly product designers. Yeah, three content designers, yeah. And then, so that would mean, how big is the product org? Like, if you add in all the PMs and all that, like, what, how does it break down, Paul? Yeah, so we, we basically have product and engineering. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we call it R&D, like you mm-hmm. said, but it's a product and engineering org. And product is, uh, you know, design, product management, research, content design, and it's about 50. 50 people. So then the rest yeah. are engineers, basically. Yeah. And that covers, of course, like not just product engineers, but everyone working on foundations, security, stability, yeah. infrastructure, All you name it. Yeah. Um, we grew by, I think, nearly 100 people last year. So obviously that's a significant lift, um, nearly 50% growth. Yep. So I presume everything worked, worked swimmingly. And, uh, that was very and, easy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just, just happened by itself. Um, in your eyes, have things slowed down at all? What's, what's worked, what's broken? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think things that you tend to gravitate towards when you try and answer a question like that is shipping. Like, yeah. do, you know, shipping slowed down. Because like some, I think in some cases we have slowed down and it's actually been good. Like, yeah. you know, being more thoughtful about different things yeah. and being more deliberate. But uh, shipping hasn't slowed. In, in fact, I think it's increased in, yeah. in pace. Uh, like, even when you take into account all the additional people we have, which is actually something that we're, I think, pretty proud of. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's always been a thing that Intercom has held near and dear is yeah. our ability to ship and... Yeah. Uh, the thing that I've always kind of uh, reacted against over the years is like inefficiency. Yeah. So I think this kind of obsession with efficiency and not wa- and not being wasteful, which kind of come from the startup days when we were like really, like, you know, being wasteful was kind of death. I so. remember you were probably, without commenting too much on your former employers, somewhat scarred by previous teams where there was inefficiency or where projects take a can or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, without mentioning <laughs> specific logos, <laughs> would it begin with F or G? Yeah, without mentioning, yeah, yeah. Companies begin with G. Uh, most of my career pre intercom, yeah. I worked on things that never shipped. Wow. I worked on things for, I worked on, on, on products for over a year yeah. that were then cancelled. Wow. And so when that happens to you a lot, you get burned and you have mm-hmm. deep scars that probably remain for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure Emma's got a few of those. So I think that we've always had this obsession and, 
And it's continued to this day. And so yeah. this year has been really good on that front. You know, we've managed to ship a phenomenal amount of, amount of things at, yeah. to, to our level and, and quality. Yeah. And I think it's this obsession with process and scalable process and efficiency and just being able to have something that people can understand that works, that's very customer-centered, which means, you know, two, two things. New people can join the company and kind of like slot right in. Right. Uh, they kind of know what to do pretty yeah. soon. And so they're like shipping code if they're an engineer very fast. And also things that have a very low risk of failing. Right. We think a lot about what we build and a lot of time on research and problem identification and prioritization so that the things we do end up building are solving problems our customers actually have, right. not like hypothetical things we're guessing. I have to push in this. Like, has it all been one-way traffic? Like, or like, uh, like you know, one doesn't simply grow by nearly 50% and not have a few, like, for lack of a better word, fuck-ups along the way. Like, uh, yeah. has anything, like, has anything come to mind? Is it too confidential to talk about or... <laughs> Um, it's different ways to think about that. One one thing is something we've kind of talked about internally this year, which is also like a topic that's been talked about externally, is the difference between output and outcome. Right. So, you know, we say things like, actually, don't, we've shipped so many things this year, I actually don't know how many things we've shipped. I think it's like over 140. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's oh, like user-facing changes, to be clear, it's like, just rolls off. Yeah, yeah like when we ship yeah. code every day. Like, yeah, as you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know, we ship yeah. code 100 times a day or something like that. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, 140 user-facing changes... Uh, like the lowest level of that would be like, you know, um, an iteration on a feature, mm -hmm. making a feature better, all the way up to like brand new products. Yeah, We've shipped yeah. brand new products, multiple mm -hmm. brand new products this year. But we have talked about the difference between output and outcome. And so yeah. certainly like if we were to critique ourselves and, you know, that it hasn't been all plain sailing, there is often a question of like, are people using the things we shipped? Yeah. Uh, let's be honest about that. We have this like principle, very important principle here about shipping to learn, mm -hmm. not ship and forget. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been a challenge to hold ourselves accountable yeah. to that. Yeah. Because of the pace at which we work. Right. So, yeah, kind of the, the 140 features or user-facing changes means 140 post-mortems and in theory 140 new roadmaps for all these things that we've yeah. just unearthed into the wild. So, yeah, I can sort of see that. Um, but what about scaling a design or your park design has also grown substantially to kind of to match all of this. What have been like the interesting sort of choke points or what have been the, the things that worked, the invariants, et cetera? Yeah, as as you were talking there, Paul, I was thinking about a chat I had recently with someone at another company, well-respected design team in another company. Was it Google? It wasn't Google. Oh, okay. <laughs> I said well-respected. <laughs> That's a joke <laughs> to all my Jokes. old friends. Um, but the situation that this other person described to me was a team that was given huge latitude to invent what they want to work on. Yeah. And um, they would, you know, come in and drive their own projects for six months only to have it basically shit canned, you know, a week before it was ready to launch by the CEO. And what that eventually leads to is like a high degree of turnover because that really only ha needs to happen to you a couple of times for you to hit the point where you've been in your job a year and not shipped a single thing. And mm -hmm. to your point of like what the what the outcome is, is is, is nil in that case. Yeah. So our approach is, as Paul was describing, like there's not a lot of fat, I think it's fair to say, on the work that we do. And so a lot of the stuff within an environment like that has kind of been operational. We've got a lot, you know, we've had a lot to focus on quality and product strategy and all that kind of stuff. But really the scaling challenges have been around some of the operational stuff. So mm -hmm. we really went quite heavy into design ops, which is like yeah. a bit of a buzzword, I suppose. But often it's about taking those buzzwords and going, well, what does it mean for our company, 
not just in general and at the scale that we're at. And so for us in 2018, design ops was really about, um, I really think of about it as a, a, a mech, um, by the way, sorry, to define design ops, it's really just a process by which you improve the operations of how you do things, right. basic things like design crits and, yeah, and, yeah. and design process and so on. And so it's a structure whereby the people and the teams can can bubble up the problems that they're ha hitting on a day, daily basis. And then we really treat our process like a product that we iterate on constantly. And so we get to use our designer brains, I guess, not just to iterate on the product we're building, but how yeah, we do it. Okay, sure. Can um, you just uh, to bring that like, I feel like amongst our listeners, there's going to be a lot of people who are like fighting for budget for design ops and being told they don't know what the hell this is. A conversation to me and you have probably had multiple times. Can you give me, and I really am asking this uh, in a professional capacity, can you give me an example of a, of a tangible output from having design ops like that people could, you know, look to expect and be rewarded for? It, so it's a tough one. Design systems is it falls into the same camp in that like it's hard to point directly to the value that it creates, especially mm -hmm. a dollar value that it mm -hmm. creates. Also, as you scale, a, lo a lot of the way you orient your team is towards like demonstrating some kind of value for the yeah. work that you do and justifying where you spend your energy. The things like design ops and design systems are a bit trickier because they are really successful if you have the absence of things slowing you down. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So the abs, so I think a, 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 a still hard to measure, but a signifier of these things starting to work are oh, a lot of those annoying project resets that we used to have, or mm -hmm. those cases where we get far into something and have to ditch a bunch of work. Yeah. Those things start to go away. Right. A lot of the stress or uncertainty that yeah. people who are actually working on projects starts to dissipate yeah. as yeah. well because they're just better set up. Yeah. So it's really oriented around like quality and speed yeah. and an absence of those things not yeah. being there. That makes sense. Paul, did you I was going to add something. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, it's kind of go back to your like original question. Uh, one big difference between Intercom, like at the end of 2018 versus the end of 2017 is that we now have product and engineering offices, substantial ones, in Dublin, where we've always been based, mm -hmm. but now also in London and in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so we've three, which is now this global team. And yeah. so like Emmett and I and other leaders have had to really think about how do we continue to ship and yeah. grow and be successful in a world where you have people who are like not even in the same time zone as you. Yeah. They're like asleep when you're awake and vice yeah. versa. And operations, like design ops, is really cool in 2018. Yeah. As is like research ops and just product ops, management ops, ops is probably coming like, next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> PM ops is coming yeah, soon. Yeah, VP product ops. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for that. It's <laughs> great. Uh, and, so, uh, and so when you think about that, operations is actually, I think, the the thing we've always been a little bit obsessed about, although yeah. never really called it by the cool way. Just, yeah. you know, like program management falls into mm -hmm. this category too, which mm -hmm. we talked about, I think, this time last year, about how program management had like really changed Intercom. Mm -hmm for the better in this regard. And we've continued to invest in that too. So this, yeah. this whole this whole idea of like operations, properly understood, yeah. I think results in a world in which people are way less frustrated with like, yeah. you know, like Emmett said, things not shipping, yeah. course corrections, not knowing who to talk to. Yeah. Like maybe a year ago, people would wonder when I should be involved. Mm -hmm. Now they don't. Yeah. Same for and, and you probably show up, you, you don't show up late in the project and throw it away. Like, uh, because yeah, cause right. if you needed to be involved, the process would have got you in at the exactly, right time. Exactly. That makes sense. Emma, can we go back to design systems for a second? Um, was this a substantial investment for us in 2018? And, and like, again, kind of help me and thus potentially our listeners think about when and how to invest in it? 
Well, first of all, yes, it was a yeah. we, we ramped up investment in it specifically. We had always had basically a skeleton team on this yeah. where we were, you know, going from the kind of standard pattern library set of yeah. UI components to towards something more robust to get the more robust thing, which I've, I've written about in the past. So I kind of think of it as a full stack design system where it touches all points mm -hmm. of your of your product. We now have a team that is basically fully staffed. It's got two designers, a PM, an eng manager, and I think two engineers, three right. engineers perhaps. So that's a fairly substantially staffed team. That's yeah. a, a good investment. As to when to get there, I, like, I don't think you can point to, you must do it before you get to 20 designers. I think it's more a function of like, watch what, it is starting to break. Yeah, what, what what's a problem sign? Like if, if you if you find in your org, you've got like nine different implementations of roughly the same button, but they're all slightly different. Like that's a kind of like maybe a, a facetious point, but like is there a more general sort of... It, it's things like that. It's also, I think another like warning sign is that you start to hear a lot that it's difficult to do simple things, Yeah. right? Something that ostensibly seems like it shouldn't be a huge investment yeah. is difficult because there's some design debt or technical debt in order to rationalize what's there already. Yeah. And so you realize mm, we need to invest a bit more in like having the right building blocks so yeah. that we can build a product yeah. out of them. You've spoken uh, before about the size of those building blocks as well. Like I think like historically when pattern libraries emerged, they were like much more at the very atomic component level. It was like, here is how our dropdown looks. Whereas when I look at our pattern library these days, it's much more like, here's how we lay out a form. Here's how we display a user list. Like it's, they're big pieces of Lego to play with. Yeah. And they're the big pieces of the intercom product, yeah. right? Like messages and articles yeah. and customers and things like that. I, I think intercom is insane. Again, like design systems, kind of a trendy thing. You have to mm -hmm. figure out what it means to you, you, you know, your company. Um, it we're particularly well suited to make the most of it, given mm -hmm. that what we're building is a suite of products, mm -hmm. very like really large software pr footprint, and you could build them all somewhat independently. You'd have inconsistent products that would that would be a shame, yeah. but also you'd have people building yeah. the same things or the very similar things again and again. And yeah. so to Paul's point of like 150 things a year or whatever, yeah. that number is going to drop when you have yeah. a lot of people having to just manually build the same yeah, thing again and yeah. again. So for us, uh, it certainly works well. Yeah. But again, I think you need to figure out like what it actually means to your org. Yeah, um, that makes or, sense. Yeah. Paul, one area where I think uh, I experienced a change in, in how our product and engineering teams work is in our relationship with go-to-market teams, specifically, say, uh, how we deal with like some of our, our larger customers or larger prospects. Like one thing that occurred to me very early on when I moved back to R&D or to product and engineering land was um, how we have a lot of inputs to our roadmap. But one customer who it's fundamentally impossible to listen to unless you're like, you know, talk to other folks is the voice of the customer who couldn't adopt your product. Mm -hmm. As in they, mm -hmm. they ultimately couldn't agree to buy it for whatever reason. And that's because of a shortcoming. Everything else kind of has its way onto the roadmap with the exception of this, right? Yeah. And that kind of, the penny really only dropped for me, it sounds naive, but like uh, after multiple conversations with folks in sales, you kind of took point on that in a lot of ways. Um, talk us through what we changed there. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of track the journey over the years because, you know, intercoms changed a lot and there's lots of people listening to this who have companies of all different types and sizes. And so some are small and some like when we were smaller, like our self-serve channel was mm -hmm. like so kind of dominant in at least in how we thought yeah you know people just go to our website you know they find out about us word of mouth whatever twitter talk to people that they know in the industry they go to our website and sign up themselves and they're up and running 
And as we get bigger and bigger and bigger, and as people get to know Intercom, we got bigger companies coming on, knocking on our door with more complex requirements. Mm-hmm. And often they need to talk to someone because, mm-hmm. you know, no market, like as good as any marketing site might be, it's not, it's yeah. not going to answer every single question yeah, people yeah. have. So I kind of found, I think, that A, we started to have more and more companies who just wanted to talk. Mm-hmm. Hey, t- you know, talk to us about, about Intercom. So then our sales team kind of grew out of that. Yeah. And it's been really successful. And like, as you said, there was definitely a lag between the sales team growing inside Intercom and us in product engineering actually realizing that we needed to listen mm-hmm. way better. You know, we'd always like mm-hmm. corridor chats and, yeah. you know, very open. Uh, it wasn't like it was a deliberate thing. It was just more that um, we were a little lagging. Yes, yeah. we were lagging. Yeah. And the lesson, the hard lesson I learned was like, oh, shit, like there's a whole critical input here that we're just missing. And so we changed that. And, you know, what we didn't do very explicitly was do whatever the prospective customers were asking us for. Mm-hmm. That's obviously um, not a good path, mm-hmm. a path to ruin over some period of time where you just start building like one-off features and changes yeah. that just make your product a big mess. So what we did is, like, like we've always done, like I was saying earlier, like operations and process, we, you know, kind of sat down with, sale, with the sales team over the course of like weeks and months and together very collaboratively built a process and we iterated it over time, over the year, so that we could gather all the inputs that they were hearing, summarize them, synthesize them, pull out the patterns. One big change was that customers typically ask for features, very specific features. And we kind of worked the sales team so that when the sales team were talking to customers, they got the customers to think in terms of the problems that they had, which is kind of like a classic design thing. Like if if you're in the world of design, it's very common. Mm way to think that you ensure you understand people's problems and then you figure out the best solution. They're often not the best people to mm-hmm. figure out the best solution. But, you know, if you live in the sales world, that's not common really. Yeah. And so it was awesome. We, we, we built this process together. It's called Problems to be Solved, mm-hmm. which is very self-explanatory. Borrowing from the jobs we don't style. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's got an acronym too. Yeah. PTS, PTBS. Yeah. Uh, so Problems to be Solved. And that's literally what it is. It's a list of prioritized problems to be solved. And it's taken from like hundreds and hundreds of, you know, weekly and monthly sales conversations. And then, and then like you said, it's one, it's one input. Mm-hmm. So now we have like a new input yeah. all around, you know, can we make Intercom better based on the things that prospective customers yeah. are looking for? And obviously they have to be like traded off against the current customers, the like the things we have, the ideas we want right. to build, all the new shit we hope to do in any given year. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's been quite a... a a force of maturing, I'd say, for us to to bring in the sort of voice of the unmet customer. Or, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's just one of those things that's a no brainer in retrospect as well. You know, it's like some something of a truism among among designer product people to like know your user. Yeah, but nobody talks about knowing your prospective user, or the right. person who isn't a user, because yeah. you have already failed them. Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I think that's exactly, and especially when it relates to like blockers. Like, it's not like. It's not, these aren't people saying I'd use you if only you'd also add five more features so that I could do like face ID tracking. And, you know, it's yeah. always like, I want to use you exactly the way you intend to be used, but I just need this extra piece of like permissions or security or settings or whatever right. to actually to unblock me and my team from adopting. It's like, it's not, these aren't like typically like directional. I need your product to change its behavior. It's mm-hmm. much more like I just, I need you to unlock this extra piece so that I can, you know, adopt a tool that meets my standards and my criteria. Right. Totally. I yeah. think our, yeah. th- then our role in interpreting that is like, is this something that makes sense for the product holistically yeah. or was on our roadmap and we yeah. can pull forward rather than just like responding yeah. to those sales blockers? But Absolutely. Yeah. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode 2 of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our Chief Product Officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Last year we rolled out, I think, and I'm going to get this wrong, but we rolled out Messenger 4, mm -hmm. uh, which was a whole new Messenger, new home screen, new design, new launches, new everything, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, we launched an app store where apps could exist inside the Messenger. We, then we launched a public version of App Store, where like now you can actually like search for these things on the web and find them. We launched Custom Bots, uh, which was basically a, a way to start conversations and put a user down a certain uh, bot-driven path. Then we launched AnswerBot, which is a way to understand and infer answers from and automatically answer customers' questions. Um, none of those things were, there certainly weren't requests from our sales team, nor, nor they were kind of requests from our current customers. A lot of them were kind of net new things we wanted to do. At the start of the year, we had some idea we wanted to do all this, but I remember a tweet you had ages ago, Paul, where you said, like, you know, strategies that reveal themselves in hindsight are kind of your favorite type of strategy. Was this one of those things where, like, you kind of, you had in your mind's eye at the start of the year, here's all the sort of the key components, and by the time this all drops, it'll all fit together? Or was it kind of more, we'll ship and learn and, and adapt and ship and learn and adapt? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it's it's definitely both. But I think it's more, more the former that there was a plan. Yeah. So, you know, like, now that you asked the question and we were kind of like joking about the Google and Facebook days earlier, yeah. it does remind me of that time in my career, which is going back a long time now and those companies have radically changed since then. But I remember when I was at Google working on social products and Facebook was this company, whatever, three miles away. Yeah. That was a big giant mystery. And every time Facebook launched something, it was individually impressive. And then you'd wait, and then a month later, something else. And they were very fast at shipping mm -hmm. back then. A month later, something else, like significant new things. And it just started adding up and adding up and adding up. And like, it blew my mind. It was like a real kind of career moment, you know, yeah. eye opener for me, because I was kind of learning what strategy even was or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, the sum is greater than the parts. And yeah. these are all connected. And they're unlocking. There's literally a path of unlocking here. Someone yeah. had a plan. This isn't yeah. an accident. Yeah. And. Every time Facebook announced another new thing that built on the prior ones, it was way harder for Google to compete. Like they were building up like defensible moat after defensible moat. And it's, ne it's never left me since then. That idea that like you, you should design these like ecosystems that are connected and the sum is greater than the parts. So for us this year, there was definitely that playing out. Yeah. You know, we also, as I said earlier, have this value of shipping to learn. So yeah. there's, there's some, you know, f humility in our part knowing that yeah, you know, we kind of have this like value around like being confident and yet humble in what mm -hmm. we ship. 
you know, we should be confident in our decisions. We, we run a good process, yeah. and yet humble in the fact that we just don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. It sounds like you know, the, if I was to put on my like, say, like entry level PM hat, I'm gonna like cry and throw my toys out of the pram and say, "It sounds like you're trying to plan a roadmap up front." That sounds crazy. Like, <laughs> is that strategy. what happened? <laughs> That's called yeah, strategy. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you want a roadmap from it, just just called three two objectives uh, with really specific bullet points. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, 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 was that like you know is that effectively what happened? We're like, hey, like there's big components here, and all of these are kind of happening unless we get significant alternative feedback from the market. Yeah, pretty much. Like, you know, one thing we talked a lot about this year, and uh, towards the end of the year, you know, we had we had a, an event called the Next Chapter, and yeah. like Owen uh, got on stage. He's our co-founder and CEO, and you know, talked about our, our next chapter and talked about like basically the, our messenger, which has always been a core tenant of Intercom, and bots and apps. Mm-hmm. And so what 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 we did this year was effectively play out that vision and strategy yeah. like piece by piece. And actually, it's still early days. Like we have yeah. so much more coming yeah. that, that we like build on this. Mm-hmm. But it was the case that, you know, the the, the new messenger um, had this thing called the home screen. Yeah. And on this home screen, you, you could embed apps. Yeah. And so suddenly, oh, now you have apps in the messenger. Where do the apps come from? Oh, we need to help people build them, yeah. build some ourselves, have an app store. Uh, the more we grow the app store, the more apps we'll learn from people using the apps, not using apps, we'll iterate. Yeah. So the apps will get better and better. Then therefore, the messenger gets better and better. Mm-hmm. And you've got bots and... Mm-hmm. Bots can live in messenger conversations. Uh, bots can deliver apps. Yeah. So suddenly if a bot can deliver an app, which is what yeah. someone needs, like an app yeah. could be, you know, pay a bill or, you know, start a video call yeah. or whatever. Yeah. The more apps there are, the more the bots can deliver the apps. And so like yeah. all these things just make each of the others better and better. So we did actually kind of play that out. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we also launched Messenger Four with no beta, yeah, and that was risky and so on. Yeah, that was I mean, big bang launches are scary for that exact <laughs> right. reason. Uh, simply telling thirty thousand people their favorite messenger is changing is always risky. <laughs> yeah. Emmett, from a designer point of view, when Paul does this strategic road mapping of the year without telling anyone, do you um like how do you? I wish uh, that was all my idea. <laughs> yeah, how do you? Uh, credit. How do you like equip the designers? to like not have to redesign after we release new things because like it sounds like you know if there is some sort of grand plan then you, ideally you design with like one eye on the bigger picture the whole time right yeah i mean i think it's fair to say the grand plan is fairly well fair to say a couple of things one is like it's a fairly collaborative process to it's come up with this at yeah. the beginning and so there, it's there, it's less an idea of like taking the stone tablets down from Paul's office and presenting yeah. them to the to the company. People are bought in because they're involved and right. feeding into this stuff from the start. The other thing is like the one-minute overview that Paul gave was probably the extent of detail that we had right, right. at the beginning. And so mm-hmm. a ton of like what custom bots would actually look like, how the apps yeah. would work, like yeah. all of that was completely unknown. And another advantage of doing this, like in individual parts that add up to something greater is you get a greater sense of stability. By the mm-hmm. time you're building that fourth piece of yeah, the puzzle, yeah. you already have the first three. And so you've got way more clarity around what a good solution is going to look like. So by the time we got to custom bots, say, we already had the home screen in the new messenger. We had the app store. Right. A lot of the constituent parts were bedded down. And so... It's a kind of a narrowing in process, you right, know, right. over sense. the course of like the year. Paul, you mentioned earlier about the need to be like sort of confident yet humble, as in confident and, and I guess like assertive and deliberate in what we're trying to do, but humble enough to realize that you might get it wrong or you might not know the answer about certain things. 
I know you've said before that that's like one of the most important sort of traits in in the sort of PM world. And for whatever reason, over the last five years, PMs have, have I think I'll, I'll, I'll say it because so you don't have to like adopt it, maybe a type of God complex in a sense where like they think they think the the they are in some sense the center and they're they're kind of expected to know everything up front. What's, you know, when you're interviewing for uh, PMs these days, what, what is it, what's the trait you look for? How do you like test your humility um, yet at the same time make sure there's enough confidence there? Yeah, it's a pretty big question. Like um, where I start is by talking about product management more broadly. You know, product management on one level is like an old discipline. Like, you know, I think mm-hmm. Procter & Gamble first invented it in the 40s. And... You know, in tech these days, it's obviously like a core part of any technology company's role of a product manager. But it's still, it's kind of exploded. And so it's still in some way, even though it's old, like relatively new. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it's not well defined. So, you know, you can go from company to company and see people doing wildly different things. Some of it looks a lot like project management. Mm-hmm. They're not actually driving forward like a vision or strategy for a product. They don't own a product. Some of it is like, you know, order taker. Yeah. Um, they're just taking orders from someone else who decides mm-hmm. what the product is going to be and they just execute the orders they get and they're mm-hmm. the product manager. In other companies, they're expected to be the CEO, yeah. like mini CEO, and there's like articles written about how PM should be a mini CEO. And so, you know, if you're like a young product manager early in your career, uh, I'd be amazed if you're able to figure out what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Like there's so many conflicting opinions yeah. and views. So, um, you know, for us, we have our view, certainly not shared probably by some other companies. But for us, the role of product manager uh, is similar to like the bigger tech companies. They're kind of like, you know, Google really, I, I think, probably more than any other company popularized the role of product manager, you know, going back 20 years maybe, where they're like, you know, a core collaborator with engineering yeah. and increasingly design. I mean, now in, in Intercom, it's always kind of been that way, like the kind of three functions collaborate and then with the help of like content design, research, product analytics, et cetera. But it was always that kind of like trifecta of PM, design and engineering. But depending on the company, one of each one of those three has different influence. Yeah. And I think in a lot of companies, you know, the God complex you talk about yeah. is because someone an- anointed the PM yeah. and yeah. said, you're in charge. You're the tiebreaker. Yeah. And like the book stops with you. Yeah. And as a result, people then go around with this idea, a kind of inflated sense of the book stops of with being. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas I've always found the best product managers absolutely need to have product drive and uh, uh, you know product taste and sense if that makes sense but also they're incredibly open and collaborative and they're not godlike at all yeah. you know they get the best results through a collaboration not right. through like a single-minded vision yeah. Emmett uh, you've been hiring design leaders for most of well today and most of last year as well obviously all designers have uh, <laughs> Some belief that they're a higher being, let's say. Um, <laughs> except for Emmett. <laughs> except for Emmett, who's Very nice Mr. Humble here sitting in front of me. What have you been looking for? What are the traits you look for in, in designers and, and design leaders? You could probably imagine it as some kind of like hierarchy of needs type diagram. There's there's a lot of the table stakes stuff like like skills or technical ability. So there that you're screening for that stuff at the yeah. start, right? Yeah. I think experience counts for a lot. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a lot that is involved in the actual work that we do that really you need to learn in some form of like real life scenario. And then beyond that, there's probably some stuff around values, alignment with our yeah. values as well. Someone being a fit or, or a, an add to our culture mm-hmm. rather than just fitting into it and so on. Then like there's no hard and fast thing because 
I think you need to think about the shape of your team overall and yeah. what perhaps your gaps are. Otherwise, you're just consistently hiring for the same type of person yeah. and you'll end up with a team that, you know, where everyone shares the same maybe gaps, right, yeah. as well as strengths. And so it might change. A lot of the time you're thinking about filling the gaps. You think about the team holistically in terms of seniority. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be too top or bottom heavy in terms of, of that uh, experience as well. And, you know, specialization as we scale is a thing. Yeah. As I said, we have content designers uh, coming in now as well. So it's a range of things and it varies. Right. So it's it's kind of like a, a blend across. It's um, a blend of, of the stuff. Again, imagine it's a pyramid. The stuff yeah. at the bottom of the pyramid yeah. is fairly stable. Yeah. And then towards the top, yeah, I think it, it depends on the situation yeah. and where you're at as a team or what specifically you're hiring. Gotcha. Okay, last question is one that I think both of you will have some familiarity with. Paul, you gave a talk at last year's UX London called The End of Naval Gazing, where you basically said that, like, I think at the time you were speaking to UX designers, but I think you'd mm -hmm. possibly take it maybe one step broader and say designers or say designers and product managers. Roughly, it was that some of these roles spend far too long trying to figure out their place in the organization and why won't everyone listen to me and where's my proverbial seat at the table, etc. Where did that come from? What motivated you to write that talk? Uh, yeah, it definitely is applicable. It, it was one huge uh, subtweet aimed at me, I think. Was, uh, was that it? It was, uh, actually. Okay. The biggest subtweet I've ever seen. It was aimed at on stage in front of hundreds of people. It was aimed at anyone who listened. Um, it's definitely applicable outside, outside UX and design. Right. I actually gave a version of the talk to kind of test out the material a little bit. Mind uh, the product. Mind the product, yeah. 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 Uh, which is a PM conference, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so... Like what I said, I, I'll try and like encapsulate a very long yeah. talk, a 30-minute talk in like in a minute. But where it came from was something that's been building for years, mm -hmm. kind of years inside me, some kind of like level of, of discomfort that the UX industry, you know, and you can wrap it whenever, mm -hmm. we have product design, whatever. We're feeling like disconnected or disempowered or, you know, and complaining. There's a lot yeah. of complaining on Twitter. Yeah. And a lot of a lot Why of victims. Why listen to me? We're so smart type stuff. Yeah, where's my yeah. seat at the table? Oh, yeah. I got a seat at the table. Oh, yeah. this is a crap table. Where yeah. you know, is there a better table yeah. around here? You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, you know, so like, I didn't turn up at yeah. the table anymore. I'm not facing all you all at the table. I'm going to turn my back on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't like what you, you're all saying. And so, yeah. and so that was kind of like the I guess the tipping point for me of like, okay, I think I should just you know try and write this talk and, and get out and, and and make the point heard. And so. The kind of lesson in it all was that the UX industry tends to say they're the voice of the user. Yeah, that's the kind of like you know stick you get beaten with. Like yeah. we are the voice of the customer. Yeah. Um, how can you in sales, or how could you in marketing, or how can you the yeah. CEO, or you know whatever? Pretend to know anything. Yeah, yeah. You, you know you're not the customer. Yeah, I've I'm spoken the customer. to the user, and they presented this wireframe to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like like the, the, and, and it's a it's a stick people they, they beat people with. And so you know here's like a kind of telling moment from the talk. There's like about 400 people in the audience, 500 people in the audience. And I asked them to put up their hand if they'd spoken to a customer in the last 24 hours, something like that. Yeah. Or I think I asked them, like, you know, put your hand up if you speak to at least one customer a week. Yeah. One customer a week. And like three people yeah. out of four or 500 put up their yeah. hand. And That's the voice of the users. And I, yeah, <laughs> and I said, well, guess what? Your sales team yeah. talked to 10 customers a day, at least. Your support team talked to 40 people a day. So there's other parts of your company that are far more representative of the voice of the user than all of you, all of us. You know, I, I was mm -hmm. in this group too. And I said, you know, we need to um, wise up to that and, and realize that it's, you know, um, a team sport where one spoke on the wheel and sales and marketing and everyone else yeah. has an equal part to play. And it's, 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 it's imperative that for the industry to move forward and mature, 
that people en masse realize that it is you are one spoke on the yeah. wheel, one of 10 or 12, and therefore you've got one tenth or twelfth to the influence. And like the, you know, not to be glib, but like the subtweetish component of it was possibly like, if I'm reading it correctly uh, from the slides, it was something like, therefore, stop spending so much time debate, debating with other you people in the UX design community right. about the nuances of a persona and go and talk to your sales team or your support team or your marketing team or anyone else who's closer to the business than you are, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the reason it's called the end of navel gazing was because, you know, through this frustration, this, like, I, I think, like, like really poorly misunderstood view of one's place in the world, through this kind of misunderstanding of that, people tend to just start looking inward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they don't like, they got the seat at the table, don't like the seat. Well, I'm not going to fight to understand what my seat even means. I'm just going to go back to where I was mm-hmm. and complain. Yeah. And fight over, like, the tools. Yeah. Well, what's better, Sketch or Figma? Oh, yeah. jobs doing our personas. What kind yeah. of jobs to be done? This way or that yeah. way? Like fight, yeah. people are fighting. Yeah. And it's like, there's like a big, big bad world out there of real people. Yeah. You know, go start talking to them. Stop like pondering internally. And but this doesn't apply at all to designers, does it? <laughs> no, not per- personal company excluded. Yeah. I think designers should have a throne at the table. It should be. You know, just when you're talking there, I, and I've thought this before about this topic, I think when, you know, there's design in the broadest sense is a very long history. And I think we tend to look back at like, have you ever heard the story of Steve Jobs is at Next and he got Paul Rand to design a logo for him. And mm-hmm. Paul Rand was like, I will do one logo and mm-hmm. you can use it or you cannot. And this sense that like a designer is a genius who yeah. delivers work from on high and like it or lump it, but like designers are special. And so you take yeah. the work or you don't. That's just a different job, like, yeah. uh, you know, to compare to the type of work that we're doing, which is like, so collaborative within a complicated organization that has so many required inputs that no one person could ever, you know, handle on their own. And so I think it's really the reason that it's a, it's this ongoing point of of conversation for some people perhaps is that it triggers this existential crisis because they thought they were one thing Mm -hmm. and then they do get the opportunity to have the, the seat at the table. But then what's being asked of them is completely different to what they thought they were. Yeah. I thought I was a designer and I was supposed to be. And this is not helped, by the way, by the fact that you look across the industry at all these other teams and you see like just the output that yeah. they created. Not all of the messy yeah. stuff that was happening, you know, the, the rest of the iceberg below the surface that, that got them there. And so you tend to valorize things like the output and one mm-hmm. single um, delivery yeah. because that's the reference points that you had going in. And, and maybe that goes back to what I was saying, which is like experience really counts for a lot here yeah. where you get some of those lessons under your belt and you realize, wow, I need to do more than just like, it's more than just headphones on sitting at my desk yeah. delivering design work. Yeah, it's right. extremely collaborative. Sure. Okay, I think we best leave it there. Thank you both so much for your time. That was 2018 and running Intercom at the scale we're at now. Join us next time or we're going to talk about 2019 and all the crazy shit that's coming. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.